Lord Jesus, you are our living hope. Our faith and our hope are alive because Jesus is alive. I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand something of that today and even more of it next week. Mostly, Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and a mind to understand how you have brought salvation to believers, to men and women like us who know you. And the reality that you are eager, willing, and ready to give this same salvation to anyone who would believe today, this day. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give them ears to hear, cause them to wrestle with these truths. Though they be uncomfortable for them, it doesn't matter. Oh, Father, I pray that whatever discomfort comes from it would result in the resurrection of the heart. Change them, Father, I pray. Change me. And grant, Lord, that you would enable us to worship you even as I preach. Help us to see it and glory in it, to take notes on it, to remember it, to refresh on it later, to praise you, to worship you for it, because you are worthy. So use this hour, Father, we pray, in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Today we climb the Mount Everest of Romans. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 are the twin peaks that tower over the theological landscape of this timeless epistle. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, these two verses are the most important verses in the New Testament. And I can't help but agree. Together, these two were responsible for striking that spark that quickly erupted into a spiritual forest fire that thundered across the Western world with such power that its effects are still plainly evident some 500 years later. Like all major fires, this one has a name. It is universally known as the Protestant Reformation. And at the blazing center of that massive spiritual reformation stood and stands the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is what Paul is writing about here in Romans chapter 1 and throughout most of the book of Romans. In Romans 1, 16 and 17, our key text for this morning, we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at these two and... Many, but nowhere near all texts that are relevant to the question that lays before us this morning and the doctrines that we will touch on briefly as we go. But before we begin, let's do what we always do. Let's stand in honor of God's word, and we will read Romans 1, 16 and 17 in its context. So follow along, starting with verse 12. Romans 1, verse 12. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel." For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, which just means to everyone else. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Throughout the centuries leading up to the Reformation, the idea of how one could be reconciled to God through salvation was a complicated thing. Virtually everyone was taught that they needed to follow Roman Catholic rituals, attend the Mass, confess their sins to the priest, do prescribed penance, 
not repentance, but penance. Try not to commit mortal sin. Give money to the church. Obey the law. Keep the traditions. And then when you die, you can expect to be summarily cast into purgatory where you will spend an undetermined time, hundreds, perhaps even thousands of years, in order to be purified before having the possibility of entering heaven. Now, all of this may sound rather strange to our Protestant ears, but even today, millions, millions upon millions of people are trapped in this largely man-made system of religion. The whole scheme, like that of all other religions in the world, is a works-based system of earning one's way to paradise. And it wasn't a new idea. It wasn't a new idea during the time of the Reformation. In fact, even back as far as Paul's day and before, Judaism had developed into a system of works-based righteousness promised to lead one to God, when in reality it never could, because no sinner has ever been reconciled to God by their good works or by keeping the law of God. And mainly that's because we're sinners at heart, and even if we obeyed the law at every point, we are born in sin. When you read the New Testament, you repeatedly hear the Apostle Paul bringing scriptures to bear against such forms of works righteousness. But if earning your way to heaven is not acceptable to God, then how can anyone be saved? How can anyone be saved? That's a great question, isn't it? And Paul wrote explicitly and repeatedly on this subject. From, from the Spirit-inspired letters of the Apostle Paul, we learn the only way sinful men and women can receive salvation, the only way. And today, I want to study with you four gospel truths. Four gospel truths about how God brings about salvation for his people. I want to talk to you today about these four truths, and, and I need to keep this moving because there's a lot to cover. Take good notes. I'm going to give you definitions. I'm going to give you words you may not be familiar with. And if you have a, a heart to, to hear it and digest it, and if I have the capacity to deliver it well, then I think this will be a rich, rich study for us. And so number one, gospel truth. It's in your notes already. There is a righteousness that God requires. There is a righteousness that God requires. This is gospel truth number one. The good news always begins with the bad news. The good news is never very good unless the bad news is really bad. And believe me now, believe the scriptures when I say the bad news couldn't be worse. In our text for this morning, we see that Paul is indeed writing about salvation. He's not talking about a, a, a tertiary issue. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to what? Say it. Salvation. That's right. You can talk back to me. I'm going to try to prime the pump this morning. To salvation, for salvation. He's talking about salvation. And given the repeated biblical teaching that the wages of sin is death and the, the corresponding reality that all men are sinners, we can rightly conclude that salvation is the most important need of every person everywhere. Sinners need to be saved from the just and holy wrath of God against sinners. You say, what about, what about that phrase, God uh, hates the sin but loves the sinner? Now, there is some truth in that, but let me tell you something. God has never sent sin to hell. He sends sinners to hell. That's what's at stake here. All of this should be especially interesting to us, by the way, at Calvary Bible Church, because Paul is actually writing this epistle to the church. 
The epistle to the Romans is not a gospel tract for unbelievers, though it should certainly be used to that end. Rather, it is a letter to believers. It is essentially a letter explaining, listen carefully, Romans is a letter explaining to the church how God has brought to us his salvation and how that salvation changes us. Now notice what Paul says in verse 17. For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Now, why do you suppose he says the righteousness of God is revealed? Why didn't he say in the gospel the love of God is revealed? That's not wrong. I mean, that's biblical. I mean, we could look at several passages of Scripture in the New Testament and even the Old that grounds our salvation in the love of God. For example, John 3.16, For God so loved, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him will not, what? Perish, but have, what? That's salvation, eternal life. Based on the love of God. We could, we could look at Ephesians 2, 4. Because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. It's grounded in the love of God. And it's simple to understand. We could take the time, if we had the time, to look at 1 Thessalonians 2, 16 and, and 1 John 4, 10. It gives us the same indication that it's perfectly appropriate for us to talk about our salvation being grounded in the love of God. So why did Paul say, why did Paul say in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed? And I just want to submit to you without giving a lot of argument for this, that I think Paul wants to take believers to whom he's writing deep into the gospel so that we will marvel at the glory of his grace and that we would be overwhelmed by what he actually has done for us. He wants us to drill into the inner workings of our salvation. He wants to pull back the curtain and let us see what he's doing on the inside. What he has done that could not be seen, most of it. And so rather than emphasizing the love of God, he points us believers to the righteousness of God. We already understand the love of God. Paul wanted to give the Romans some spiritual gift. Remember that? He wanted to teach them something. This is what he's teaching them. He points us to the righteousness of God in these, in these four gospel truths. Or we could say that the saving love of God is manifest in these four gospel truths. Now, the first of these truths, as I said, is there is a righteousness that God requires. Now, let's do a little bit of history here. When Martin Luther wrestled with these verses, they didn't strike him as good tidings of great news. Uh, quite the opposite, in fact. When he read these words, especially verse 17, he became extremely troubled by them. He knew the repeated Old Testament requirements that we must pursue a life of holiness before God. For example, when God gave Abraham the sign of circumcision, he said, Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. Just another way of saying, be righteous. And Martin Luther knew other passages like God's instruction to Moses to tell the congregation of the people, all of the nation of Israel, with these words, this was his command, be holy. For I am holy. In Deuteronomy, by the way, you remember when Isaiah met the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6? And the seraphim were calling out, holy, holy, holy? What did Isaiah do? He didn't say, wow, that's cool. Never saw that before. No, he falls on his face like a dead man. He pronounces a curse on himself. Woe is me, for I am undone, for I have seen the Lord God Almighty. 
In Deuteronomy, God warned the people, saying, Deuteronomy 11, 26 through 28, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you, and the curse, if you do not obey them. If you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way then I, that I am commanding you today, you will be cursed. That's not a happy thought. Moreover, when Jesus came on the scene, you would think he would say, listen, that's law, I'm grace. No, 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 he said this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the standard hasn't changed. In fact, he goes on at the very last verse of that chapter, Matthew chapter 5. You must be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. But how could a mere man achieve such a standard? How could a sinful man achieve an impossible standard? It seems impossible. Nevertheless, Luther gave it his best effort. He was determined to fulfill these commands in his life. He set himself to pursue holiness, that is, righteousness. Whatever good works a man might do to save himself, Luther was resolved to do them. One biographer writes, he began fasting, sometimes three days on end without a crumb. He laid upon himself vigils and prayers in excess of those stipulated by the rules, that is the Roman Catholic rules for monks. He cast off blankets and nearly froze himself to death. Years later, he would write, somewhat humorously, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me well bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, readings, and other work. The reason he worked so hard was to compensate for his sins. But he never could. He could never believe that the, the, the ledger of his life would ever be balanced because of his sin. And he knew the, the ledger was not balanced. Every time he examined his own heart, he found more sin. He would spend excessive time in in confession, attempting to own every sin. And he was frightened when after six hours of confessing his sins to the priest, he would step out and think of something else that had eluded him. Even though he gave it a conscientious effort of scrutinizing his life. Luther wasn't crazy. He just had an unusually clear understanding both of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. I would submit to you that he saw things far more clearly than we do. He saw them the way Isaiah saw it. And he could conclude, all he conclu could conclude was that achieving his own righteousness was a futile affair. And yet, God demanded it just the same. In his New Testament studies, Luther fixated on studying Paul's letter to the Romans. I know what it's like to be fixated on studying Paul's letter to the Romans. He knew that Paul's main theme was the righteousness of God. But he resented that righteousness because no matter how hard he tried, no matter what he did, he could not attain to it. How can a sinful man be counted righteous in the eyes of a holy God? 
When he read Romans 1.17, that the righteousness of God is revealed, he understood that to mean that God's holy character was revealed so that people would know the standard that they were to attain for salvation. And it didn't help that the Bible he was reading, the New Testament he was reading, was in Latin. Because the word righteousness of God in the Latin was the justice of God, which only laid more condemnation on him. Luther knew that he was unjust, but how could he be justified? Key term, justified. And let me give you the definition. Justification means to declare righteous. The Roman Catholic Church would tell you that it means to make righteous. And I know this sounds like a fine theological point, and we can talk about it later if you want. But the problem was the Roman Catholic Bible in Latin used the word justificare, which meant to make righteous. And the idea was you make yourself righteous. They would say that grace helps But you make yourself righteous by doing the things that the church requires of you to do. But in the Greek, the language in which Paul wrote, the term was not justificare, it was dikaiosune in the Greek, which means to declare righteous. To declare righteous. And, And let me just say it in a different way. To declare an unrighteous man righteous. How could it ever be happen? How could that ever happen and God be just? This was the dilemma. And it drove Luther to despair. At one point, his mentor, Stalpitz, reminded him, God is love. Luther, you should love him. And Luther replied, love God? Sometimes I hate him. Nevertheless, he said he would beat upon Paul until he gave up the answer to the question. You can see Luther in his study in Vortburg Castle pounding on Paul, pounding on Paul. What did Paul mean? That the gospel reveals the righteousness of God? And how could, how could it be good news for sinners like himself? The fact is, even though Luther was failing to understand Paul's meaning, he was correct to conclude that there is a righteousness God requires. Oh, yes, there is a righteousness that God requires. And the righteousness God requires is infinitely higher than any sinner can attain by his works. Hence, Paul will say, chapter 3, verse 20 of Romans, by the works of the law, no one will be, and here's the word, justified, declared righteous in his sight. Let me read it again. By the works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. Galatians 2.16, man is not justified by the works of the law. And you could just insert good works. Nobody is justified in God's sight by good works. And everybody that you talk to about the gospel and ask them, why do you think God's going to let you in heaven? They're going to say, because I did good. Or my good outweighed my bad. To which you just need to respond, can I read you? Something from the Bible that God wants you to hear. By the works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. All of this leaves every man, woman, and child in a hopeless state. It's exactly where God wants you. You've got to grasp the bad news or you'll never embrace the good news. As the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah rhetorically asked, just to help Israel see their hopeless state. 
He asked rhetorically this question, can an Ethiopian change the color of his skin or a leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You are a sinner through and through. That's what he's saying. And you, you, you can't change it. It's not that it can't be changed, but you can't change it. There is none righteous, not even one. You see, as I said a few weeks ago, there is a righteousness we desperately need, don't have, and can't earn. So the first gospel truth is that there is a righteousness that God requires. Now, the second truth that Paul would have us learn together about our salvation is this, that there is a righteousness that God, listen carefully, that God achieved. Uh, this is where the good news begins. Beloved, this is why the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, came to earth, lived for 33 years, and died on the cross. Jesus was sent by the Father specifically to accomplish this one thing, to reconcile unrighteous people to a righteous and holy God. How did he do that? How did God reconcile us to himself? That's the question, right? Paul is showing us how God did our salvation. Remember, Paul is, is teaching about this interesting and very important topic for Christians like you and me. We want to know, how has God brought about our salvation? So here we learn the amazing gospel truth that while there is a righteousness God requires, it is also a righteousness that he has achieved on our behalf. And, and, and if you've been a Christian for a long time, you're probably thinking about six different verses that fortify that, both Old and New Testament. And, and I, I can just tell you, we don't have time to look at all of them. Luther doesn't know this yet, but it's about to transform his life, this truth that there is a righteousness God has achieved. And when Luther grasps this truth, it will set the world on fire. The world, especially the Western world, will never be the same. How did Jesus achieve the righteousness that he required? Well, he did it by two means. Now, this is important, and I'm not sure I've ever taught on this from uh, this podium before, or maybe anywhere. But there are two means by which God accomplished your salvation. First, he lived a perfect life of righteousness, righteous obedience to God. And secondly, he died under the full weight of God's wrath against sinners. Now, in theological circles, we sometimes refer to these means of salvation means of reconciliation as Jesus's active and passive obedience. Jesus's active obedience and his passive obedience. Let's think about the first one, his active obedience. When we say Jesus's active obedience is what purchased our righteousness, this is what we're talking about this active obedience. We mean that he lived in perfect obedience to the Father from the moment he was born until the moment he died. You may remember at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry down there at the Jordan where John the Baptist was baptizing all kinds of people. Jesus went into the water with him and he said, John, baptize me. And you remember what happened? Uh, we're not going to talk about God speaking out of heaven at that point. That's, that's a really important thing. But what happened for, for our purposes is John went, are you kidding me? Why do you want me to baptize? You should be baptizing me. You're the Holy One. I am, I'm unrighteous, even as a prophet. And you remember how Jesus responded to that? 
He said, essentially, I need you to baptize me. I need to be baptized by you because it is fitting that I, listen carefully, that I fulfill all righteousness. That I fulfill all righteousness. He was saying, John, I know you're uncomfortable with this, but baptize me anyway. Baptize me because I have come to fulfill all righteousness. Whatever God required of his people, whatever God required of people, this Jesus did. All of it. There were no exceptions. In this regard, Jesus accomplished in his years on earth what Adam failed to accomplish in the garden. Paul is clear about this. And in more than one place in the New Testament. He writes, for example, in chapter 5 of Romans, verse 19. Listen carefully, or turn there if you want. Romans 5, 19, just a few pages to the right from where you're looking. Romans 5, 19. For as by one man, that's Adam, disobedience, one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so by the one man, that's Jesus, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now let me read it again without the commentary. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made, what's the last word? Righteous. Paul's appealing to the concept, here's another term, he's appealing to the concept of federal headship. Federal headship. Meaning that as our federal head, Adam, was man's legal representative in the eyes of God. When he fell into sin by his disobedience to God, he did so as our representative. He had power of attorney. The decision that he made applied to everyone under him. We all became sinners through Adam's sin. But the same is true with Jesus. When Jesus came into the world, he did what Adam failed to do. Namely, he fulfilled all righteousness. And he did it as the federal head or legal representative of all who would believe. Jesus lived a life of active obedience to the Father. In the Gospels, he often made statements like this, John 4, 34. My food, uh, now let me give you a little context here. Um, this, is, this is John 4. This is Jesus meeting the woman at the well. That, that just fantastic story. And the things Jesus says to her. And the fact that he, she was the first one. Five husbands, and the one you're, you're living with now is not your husband. And to you, you are the first one that I am saying, I am the Messiah. It's amazing that he chose her. And she was overwhelmed. She was overwhelmed. And then the, the disciples came back and like, what are you talking to a woman for? And they said, hey, here's, we, we brought food. We brought food. Been gone for a long time. It's in the heat, in the middle of the day. Been talking to this woman. She runs away to the town. A great revival breaks out, by the way, but before that happens, the disciples say, get him something to eat. And the Lord says this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is the active obedience of Jesus Christ. John 6, 38, he says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Listen, beloved, from the first day Jesus arrived in the world, he was on mission. He was on mission. 
The Father sent him to bring salvation to sinners, and he would do it in part through his righteous life. Through his righteous life, not your righteous life. This is his active obedience. Now, was our salvation grounded in the love of God? Yes, it's grounded in the love of God. And that love is manifest in his active obedience on our behalf. You remember the definition that I've taught you a thousand times? To love is to give what you have, what the other person needs, because God wants you to, regardless of how you feel. Right? This is Jesus loving you. This is Jesus loving you. This is active obedience to the Father. A life of perfect righteousness, despite all the temptation, even when the devil himself came and, and tempted him after 40 days of not eating, hungry. And he says, Jesus, if you wanted to, I know you could just speak to those rocks and they would turn into fresh, warm Panera bread. And Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every, listen, this is important, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What's he saying? Man lives by being obedient to God. You want to know a life of wisdom and joy? Live in obedience to God. It is not burdensome. His commands are not burdensome. They give life. They give life. So was our salvation grounded in the love of God? You bet it was. And this is how he loves you, loved you, and loves you. The second and better known means of our salvation is sometimes referred to as Jesus' passive obedience. Namely, that he allowed himself to be crucified on the cross where he would die the disgraceful death of a common criminal. Passive obedience. He could have called 10,000 angels and he didn't. Right? The problem, however, with this term, passive obedience, is, listen carefully, Jesus was never passive about anything. Least of all, his death. You'll remember that in John 10, 17 and 18, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Now listen, listen to this. This is very emphatic. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And in case you didn't get his, his active obedience to the Lord, he says this, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. There was no passivity here. And so Jesus was actively obeying the Father even in his death on the cross. So perhaps it would be better to refer to these two means of salvation as the twofold active obedience of Christ. The twofold active obedience of Christ. And, and you're thinking, okay, maybe you already said this, but could you say it again? What were the two? That, that, thank you for asking that. First, his whole life his whole life, he perfectly fulfilled the law. That's number one. His whole life, he perfectly fulfilled the law. That's, that's perfect righteousness. And then he willingly accepted the punishment sinners deserve for breaking the law. Let me say it again. He willingly... He willingly accepted the punishment that sinners deserve for breaking the law. First of all, he didn't break the law. Secondly, he was punished for breaking it. And he did it actively. 
by his own authority. He came to earth. He lived for 33 years. And then he died, and he was in control the whole time. Every, every Old Testament prophecy about the, what, where the Messiah would be born, what he would do, where he would go, how he would live, how he would die, how he would be treated, every one of them was fulfilled in him and at just the right time. And why did he do it? He did it so there could be what theologians call, okay, here's another term. You're going to love this for you theology junkies, right? Here's another great one. Double imputation. Isn't that great? Doesn't it make you sound smart? <laughs> he did it so that there could be what theologians call double imputation. That is, the righteousness he achieved and the death he died would be, here's the word, imputed to our account. Both the righteousness he lived and the death he died would be imputed to our account in the eyes of God. Listen. Listen to how Paul says it in Romans 5.21. Are you ready? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, on the cross, God treated Jesus as if he lived my wicked, rebellious life so that he could treat me as if I had lived Jesus' perfect, righteous life. Beloved, this is the gospel. All that bad news at the beginning is gloriously good here. Eternally good here. This is the good news. This is the good news. God has found a way to save sinners in a manner that demonstrates that he is both just and the justifier of those who believe. You see, beloved God, God was out to change your position. You're standing before him. He was out to change our standing in the eyes of the court of heaven. He was out to replace our status as condemned sinners who deserve the holy wrath of God and change our identity so that we are now sons and daughters of God. In fact, it's implicit here, not explicit. But whenever Paul uses the term in Christ, as he does here, he means... Your status is now not alien from God, but united to Christ. And like in any marriage, if you get into a marriage and your wife is rich and you're in horrible debt, guess what happens when you get married? She gets all your debt and you get all her money. <laughs> right? Except in our case, he gets all our sin and we get all his righteousness. It's union. It's covenant. We've now covered two of the four gospel truths. Oh my. <laughs> so we've briefly discovered or studied the fact that there is a righteousness God requires. There's a righteousness that God achieved. Third, there's a righteousness God reveals. Look at Romans 1.16 again. Paul declares, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Then verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is, what's the next word? Revealed. 
You see, friends, if the question is, how, how can a sinner be counted righteous in God's sight? Paul is now telling us the answer to that question. He reveals the answer. And for just a moment, turn with me to the third chapter of Romans again and follow along as, as I pick up our reading over verses, uh, verse, starting at verse 20. I stumble here because even as I look at it, I know there are things that I can't stop and explain, but just, just see it and glory in it and just close your eyes and praise God. Worship him as I read. For, now, before we get to the four, you have to to put in place everything that I've said so far. For, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, and, and that's all. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What is Paul's teaching? What is he teaching us about our salvation? He's he's telling us that the righteousness we so desperately need for salvation comes to sinners like you and me by faith rather than by law-keeping or good work-doing. In fact, Paul says, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Not just by faith, but from faith to faith. I take that to mean, that could mean a couple of things. And they all kind of mean the same thing. From faith to faith, meaning faith from beginning to end, or faith from first to last. This righteousness comes to us, if it comes at all, it comes exclusively by faith. Exclusively by faith. Now a Jewish person may say, "Now, now wait just a doggone minute. What kind of novel theology is this? To which Paul would reply, nothing new about this. In fact, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is grounded in the Old Testament. Notice, again, Romans 1.17, how Paul says, just as it is written. And as a good Bible student, you should be asking yourself, well, where is it written? Show me where it's written. Well, the first reference is, is found all the way back in the book of Genesis. I mean, that's how far justification by faith goes. All the way back to the book of Genesis. Here we read in Genesis 15, 6, and he, that is Abraham, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because in the coming weeks, we're going to hit Abraham. We're going to cover all of this some more. And he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed and God counted his belief, his faith as righteousness. The context here was that God had come to Abraham, who was in his 90s. He had no children. God had promised him a son. He was in his 90s now, no son. That means no children, no grandchildren, no progeny at all. And God comes to him at around 90 years old and he says, Abraham, I'm making you the same promise I made to you before. Someday, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. How would you respond to that? You know how Abraham responded? Must have been like this from the heart. He must have said in his heart, I trust you. I trust you. And when God came 
gave him a son. His son became a teenager. His only son, Isaac. And God says, take him over to Mount Moriah and plunge a knife in his heart. And Abraham said, son, we need to take a journey. And he gets to Mount Moriah. He builds the altar. His son wants to know, we've got the fire, we've got the wood. Where's the sacrifice? And all the while, he must have been thinking, God, I trust you. God, I trust you. And Hebrews says that in that moment, he must have thought, surely God intends to raise him from the dead. I don't know, but I trust him. And he raised the knife to plunge it into Isaac's heart. And the angel of the Lord appeared and said, stop. I trust you. Can I, just, I haven't given you any application at all. Let me give you some here. Some of you are struggling with some things right now that you just can't get it out of your mind because it bothers you so much or scares you so bad. You know what walking in faith means? You know what living by faith means? It means that you day in and day out, no matter what the circumstance, whether it's cancel, cancer, or maybe it's a financial difficulty. It, it may be that you're single and you, and you want to be married. You've been wanting to be married for a long time. Will you say with Abraham, I trust you. I trust you. When Abraham heard the news that God was promising that somehow his descendants will be as numerous as the stars. Abraham, no doubt, looked into the stars and smiled. Okay. I trust you. And God said, I now count you as righteous. Not because his faith earned it, but rather because faith is the empty hand to receive it. Back in Romans 1.17, I haven't run out of time yet, Paul refers to this as the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God. This, how do you get salvation? You have to have righteousness. There is a righteousness God requires. There's a righteousness God has, has attained. He's, and, and then there's this righteousness that he is revealed. What is this righteousness? And he, he describes it. The righteousness of God. In linguistic terms, I'm told, this is a genitive of source. In, in other words, God is the source of this righteousness, not you. God is the source of this righteousness. Every sinner needs it, and the only place to get it is from the hand of God, from the heart of God who loves you. Martin Luther continued to beat on Paul in the early chapters of Romans. And when he started getting past verse 17 and reading the context, these are, these are, this is his testimony, he beat on Paul until he grasped the context because you know as well as I, right? Context is what, class? King. Context is king. When he grasped the context, it all came together. He discovered all of this afresh. It had, it had been gone for centuries. It had, it had been buried under an avalanche of religious ritualism and works righteousness. But then, all of a sudden, the gospel came to light once again in Luther's study. And when, Paul, when Paul's explanation of the gospel became clear to Luther, Luther wrote these words, Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. Here a totally other face of the entire scripture showed to me. He saw Christ everywhere. He saw the gospel everywhere. 
He saw salvation everywhere it was appropriate to see it. He was forever changed. And the sparks of the Reformation began to roar into the history-altering fire that was the Protestant Reformation. Well, there's one more gospel truth for us to consider. There is a righteousness that God bestows. You know, it would be just a theological exercise if we got to there is a, a righteousness that God provides and a righteousness that God reveals, and yet he never gives it to you. But our God is not a theologian. He is the theos himself. And he is full of grace. Beloved, this is where grace comes in. This is where the grace comes in. The only place a sinner can find the righteousness he needs in the heart of God. It's, it's in the heart of God. Only he can bestow it. And the good news, the message of the gospel is that God is willing. He's willing to give it. He gives it freely. He gives it lavishly. He gives it as a gift, which is the meaning of grace to those who believe. And that's a sweet statement because Paul's talking to believers. This is how God did it. We see this again in the book of Habakkuk. Going back to Paul, verse 17 again, as it is written, there's that statement, as it is written, where is it written? As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is another quotation from the Old Testament, which Paul does again and again and again. And by the way, Stephen did the same thing. As he's being about, about to be stoned, do you know what he's doing? He's, he's uh, explaining the gospel roots that are in the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And Paul does that again and again. He did it before Felix. I think, he, I think he listened to Stephen, who was being stoned right in front of his eyes. He heard that sermon, and later, years later, Paul repeated it. The very man he had killed, he stole his sermon and preached it for the rest of his life. And the sermon starts all the way back in Genesis. It goes into Exodus and God's salvation and through the Red Sea. In all the other Old Testament books, there are allusions. So this is a quotation from the Old Testament once again, and it's a wonderful statement because it, it connects our salvation with our sanctification. Here's what it says, Habakkuk writing, and he says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. You're saved by faith. You also live by faith. You're saved when you hear the gospel and you say, God, I trust you. Take my life. I surrender. It's yours. Do with me what, whatever you want to do with me. Do it. I'm a willing slave. I'm a willing servant. And then from that moment on, you're continuing to exercise faith. It's not just believe. It's believe and keep on believing. It's not just trust. It's trust and keep on trusting. You'll remember in Habakkuk that the Lord had just revealed to Habakkuk. Habakkuk was complaining that uh, the people of Israel had, had abandoned him. They were given into all kinds of idolatry. Habakkuk was a prophet, and he's, he's prophesying, and nobody's listening to him. So he goes to God, and he says, when are you going to do something about this? And he said, I, I am doing something. I'm bringing the Chaldeans to crush you. And he said, that's not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> and the Chaldeans were going to come, Chaldeans, Babylonians, they were going to come and take them into exile, into Babylon. And Habakkuk looks over the scene. He knew there was 
in the nation of Israel, mostly rebellious people. That's why they were being taken into exile. That's why they were experiencing God's judgment, which we'll talk about later in chapter 1. But he knew that there was a remnant in Israel still. And so he says, my righteous ones shall live by faith. Even in Babylon, even in Babylon, even in Babylon. My righteous ones, even in Babylon, will say, Lord, I don't understand it, but I trust you. I trust you. In other words, their lives were marked not merely by a profession of faith, but by what we might call faithful faith. It is a faith that causes you to live faithfully. Or we might simply refer to it as abiding. Don't you love that term? If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will bear much fruit. Just as we receive salvation by the empty hand of faith, so we walk in the Spirit hour by hour, day after day, by faith. And what is faith? Here's faith. Forsaking all I take him. And so Luther wrote, and we get to the end of this and we say, okay, is this good news? Church, Calvary Bible Church, is this good news? Martin Luther thought so. I'd never read this before. Here's what uh, Luther wrote. Evangel, that's where the, the word we get gospel from. Evangel is a Greek word meaning glad tidings, good news, welcome information, or shout, or something that makes us sing. Talk or rejoice. And when David defeated Goliath, the giant, there was a great shout, and an encouraging message was passed around among the Jews to say that the terrible enemy had been killed and that they were free to enjoy liberty and peace. Thereupon they sang and danced and, and made merry. Similarly, God's evangel, the New Testament, it's a good piece of news. It's a war cry. It was echoed throughout the world by the apostles. And they proclaimed the true David who had done combat with and gained the victory over sin, death, and the devil. In so doing, he had taken those who were chained by sin, threatened by death, and overpowered by the devil. Though they had merited no rewards, he redeemed them justified them, gave them life and salvation, and so brought them peace and led them back to God. <laughs> My dear friends, the Lord Jesus himself this very day has swung the gates open for you. If you would but walk through them and say, okay, 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 enough resistance, Lord, I'm not resisting anymore. I trust you. I trust you. Take my life. If you want it, it's, it's, it's not anything you would want. It's I'm full of sin. The only thing I have to offer you is my sin. That's the kind of faith that he wants. It is the empty hand. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. And righteousness. Will you trust him today? If you already know him, will you glory in him because of this great salvation? Let's pray. Father, we are unworthy of these things. And they are magnificent in our eyes. But, oh, Father, 
prevent us from simply walking away having enjoyed a theology lesson. Oh, Father, may our theology drive us to doxology, to the worship of the glory of God in the face of Christ who obeyed for us, who died for us, and who now lives for us. Father, change us, deepen us, and as we grow deeper in a knowledge of our Savior, may our love for one another and those outside grow commensurately deeper so that they will see us and know that we have been with Jesus. They will know that we are believers, that we are Christians by our love. So, Father, I pray that your love that caused you to send your only Son to achieve righteousness and die in our place. Oh, Father, he is our hope, our only hope. Help us, Father, not to be ashamed of this gospel. And help us to go forward fearlessly and proclaim it to all who will listen. And, Lord, we pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus.